scripture passage for Pastor Charlie's sermon is Mark 14, verses 1 through 31. Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it out over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why is this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, 
I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our redeemer and you live. No one can kill you. No one can dethrone you. No one can displace you. No one can discredit you. No one can mar your ministry or take your place from you. You are our redeemer and you live forever and you're seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high forever and ever and ever. You are our hope. You are our anchor. You are our shield. You are our everything. And I pray now, Lord Jesus, that today you would become more and more our joy in this life. I pray that you would help us to crawl into the story of your life and to see the things that the Father has done. And I pray that the anointing oil of gladness that was upon you, that the fragrance of that would be upon us today. Oh, Father, teach us now about the story of Jesus and teach us about our place in that story. I pray for this with hope and with joy in the mighty and merciful name of Christ. Amen. In only two days' time, history would reach its point of climax, and God was in total control. He was preparing for the nations of the world and for his own son a joy that is not to be compared to any other joy in heaven or on earth. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the chief priests and the scribes, they were plotting to kill Jesus at this time. They were not interested in debating with him. They weren't interested in coming to one mind about certain aspects of his theology or theirs. They were not interested in in irritating him or agitating him. They were not interested in discrediting him or otherwise impugning his character. They were not interested in uh, undermining or even destroying his ministry. They were literally out to kill him. The most powerful people in Jerusalem were plotting against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and yet God was in total control, preparing a joy for the nations that they could not imagine. Three times prior to this day, Jesus had predicted his death, burial, and resurrection with surprising accuracy. Now, for those of us who know the story well, we probably don't think this is very remarkable because at the end of the day, we know the end of the story from the beginning of the story, right? Or in this case, from the middle of the story. And so we tend to take certain things for granted. But I want to ask you, honestly, how many people do you know who have predicted the details of their death and the aftermath of their death and the meaning of their death several times with stunning accuracy before it happened? To my knowledge, Jesus is the only one who is able to do this, and it's just another sign that he is God and that God was totally in control of everything that was happening in these days of Jesus' life. Turn back with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. I want to read verses 31 through 33. I'll give you a little bit of background, and then we'll read Mark 8, 31 to 33. Jesus had just led his disciples to the north side of the Sea of Galilee by boat. They got off in this little town called Bethsaida where he healed a blind man on his way to a resort area called Caesarea Philippi. 
It was a 25-mile walk uphill to that place. And while he was walking with his disciples, he asked them that question that you have heard before. Namely, he said, who are the people saying that I am? And the disciples said that some of the people were saying he was John the Baptist who had come back again from the dead. Other people were saying, no, he's Elijah, the most famous prophet in Israel who's come back from the dead. And still others said, no, he's one of the other prophets. He's a Jeremiah or an Isaiah or an Ezekiel or a Malachi who's come back from the dead. So everybody agreed that Jesus was a powerful man. He was an unusual man. He was a man sent from God. He was a prophet of God, but they couldn't quite agree on who he was. And so Jesus looked at his own disciples and said, yes, but who do you say that I am? And if you know anything about Peter, it won't surprise you to, to hear that he's the one who spoke up and said, Lord, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one who is destined to bring Israel into the fullness of its destiny. You are the king who will lead the kingdom. You are the Christ. Peter was speaking the truth. And Jesus knew that. And now that that truth was on the table, he wanted to teach his disciples a few things about the Christ. Because this he knew. Their perception of who the Christ is and was and what he had come to do was very far afield from who the Christ actually is and what he had come to do. And so Jesus needed to do some instructing. He needed to do some adjusting. And so he said this in chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." So with these words, the Lord began to teach his disciples four distinct things about the Christ, things they really needed to understand. First of all, he taught them that the Christ must suffer many things. So the cross is the pinnacle of the suffering of Jesus, but there were many sufferings leading up to that moment, some of which are recorded in the Gospels for us, others of which are not recorded in the Gospels for us. John said in his Gospel that if everything that happened to Jesus was recorded in a book, the whole world couldn't hold it, right? So believe me, Jesus suffered things that we're unaware of, that are not recorded. And the thing that he's wanting his disciples to understand here is this, that when he enters into that suffering, he is not some helpless victim, but he is willingly, gladly submitting to the will of the Father for his life. The Son of Man must suffer many things. It has been written. It is destined. Second thing, Jesus began to teach them that he, the Son of Man, must be rejected by the leaders of the people that he came to save. The ultimate rejection. John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel, verses 10 and 11, he said that he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In fact, far from receiving him, they rejected him. They opposed him. The leaders of the people he had come to save and that he had been so graciously blessing for century upon century were actually plotting to take his life. 
even as he was speaking. Third thing, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he, the Son of Man, must be killed. Jesus could not simply die, beloved. I remember when I was in seminary, we had this debate, like what if Jesus just got a, a real bad nosebleed and died? Would that blood have counted for our sins? And, and maybe the answer is yes. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says he had to be killed. Jesus Christ was born to be killed. Now I'm assuming that everybody in this room was born. Anybody in this room not born? And unless Christ comes soon, we will all die. But the Bible teaches us more than that Jesus was born and died. The Bible teaches us that he was born for the express purpose of being killed. He had to be killed. This was in part his destiny, and he wanted his disciples to understand. Finally, the fourth thing, Jesus began to teach them that on the third day after his death, he would rise again and conquer death. He was being very abstract here with the people, with his disciples. He was being very subtle with them, and I'm sure that they did not understand. In fact, we know from other parts of the scripture that they absolutely did not understand But what he was trying to tell them is that death would not have the final word in his life. But that through death, he was going to destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through death, he was going to deliver all those who through fear of death had been subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus had come to set the captives free. That's why he had to die. So yes, yes, he was destined to suffer many things. He was destined by his Father to be rejected by his own people. He was destined by his Father to be killed by his own people. And he was destined by his Father to destroy death by rising again from the dead. Beloved, don't let your familiarity with this story cause you to lose the wonder of what's happening here. Quite some time before these things took place, Jesus is predicting in detail what's going to happen when he dies, and the reason for which he is dying. This is no small thing. And I'll tell you, the reason that he was able to do this is because he knew the Scripture backward and forward. And in the Scripture is prophesied everything that happened to Jesus. To this day, if you will read your Old Testament with prayerful, humble eyes, God will let you see that every detail of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and eternal reign of Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. It's all there. And the reason it's there is because God is in total control. He predicted these things. He created these things from before the creation of the world. And he caused them to be prophesied and protected through the scripture, which Jesus knew very, very, very well. Now as breathtaking and as moving, as important as all of these things are to us in our day, the disciples in this moment weren't too happy about what Jesus was saying. They weren't happy with all this death talk. And so Peter, again, it would not surprise you to hear, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. These people had thought that Jesus was the Christ and they were right about that, but their perception of the Christ was of an earthly king who would march into Jerusalem with some kind of army and dethrone the Roman government and establish an independent statehood for Israel 
that the Christ would sit on the earthly throne of the King of David from where he would rule the earthly kingdom of Israel, and they were just totally wrong about this. But because this was such a powerful conception in their mind, which, by the way, they had learned in their version of Sunday school from the time they were very little children, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him and says, Lord, this kind of thing will never happen to you. You are the man. You are the God-man. You are the anointed one. You are the one who will march into Jerusalem and win a great and stunning victory. You are the fulfillment of Joshua. And like Joshua, Lord Jesus, I say to you, be strong, be courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is upon you wherever you go. Lord, you've got to stop this death talk. It's not going to be that way. Peter's heart, beloved, was not necessarily filled with self-centered and evil things. I don't think Peter was just thinking about himself. I just think that Peter's vision of the Christ and the will of God was completely off from God's vision. Peter thought that the kingdom of God could come into the world and be established through politics. And I want to tell you something. Politics will never establish the kingdom of Jesus on the earth. If you succeed in taking over Washington, D.C., you have not succeeded in establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You have not. His kingdom is heavenly, and it has to be established in heavenly ways. And so Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at all the disciples, and he rebuked Peter for being under the influence of Satan and having his mind on the wrong things. And he said to him, Peter, your mind is not on the things of God as much as you think it is. Your mind is on the things of men. I did not come to kill other people in order to establish an earthly kingdom. I came to die. I came to be killed in order to establish God's kingdom. You've got to have a paradigm shift here, disciples. God is not up to what you think he is up to. Beloved, Jesus is still talking about his death here. He's still trying to help his disciples interpret the manner and the meaning of his life, his death, his resurrection, etc. God, as I said, had predestined these things from before the foundation of the world, and they had to be. The Christ had to go through everything that Jesus said he would go through. About a week later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top of a high mountain and there he revealed something of his glory to them and they actually saw him standing with Elijah on one side and Moses on the other, beaming with glory and enjoying the fellowship of the Father. And then when the time was right, they came down that mountain and at the bottom, the other disciples were trying to cast out a demon who had been afflicting a young man for a very long time, but they could not. And so Jesus, in, uh, in much grace and compassion, stretched out his hand and rebuked that demon, commanded it to come out, and it did, in fact, come out and set this poor young person free. So having displayed his glory afresh, having shown his power again over the powers of darkness, Jesus now takes his disciples aside for the second time and begins to teach them about the Christ. Look now at chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. In chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, Mark writes this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, 
for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them. So he, he has private instruction that he just wants his disciples to know about. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. There's no question about this. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So as I said before, they didn't get all this death stuff. They didn't understand what he was talking about. And they certainly didn't understand what he meant when he said that he was gonna rise from the dead. John says that very explicitly in his gospel. He's like, we're all scratching our heads, totally confused. We didn't understand until after it happened what he was talking about. But as bemused as they were, they were afraid to ask him because they remembered the rebuke from the time before. Believe me, if Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, looked you straight in the eye and rebuked Satan while he was looking at you, you would be a little hesitant to raise questions with him. So in the fear of the Lord, they did their best to understand and they held their peace. Sometime later, for a third time now, Jesus predicted his death. If you know anything about the way Hebrews think, when they do something three times, they're doing it to the nth degree. They're heightening it to the highest place. So now for the third time, Jesus in chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, he tells them again what's gonna happen to him. Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Just a small sentence in eternal hope contained in that little tiny sentence. After three days, he will rise. So Jesus is now leading his disciples into Jerusalem. Notice that. He's at the head of the pack. He's walking in front of the group. He's leading them right into Jerusalem. And his disciples are blown away by this. They know one thing for sure. All this death talk has to do with their march to Jerusalem. That they were very clear about. In their minds, they probably thought that it was going to be a military defeat. But one way or the other, they knew he had the sense of destiny that he was going to die, and yet he's leading the pack, walking straight into the heart of darkness. And those who were following along, the followers of Jesus, not the 12 disciples, but now how many ever were following him, they're very afraid because they know that they're implicated in Jesus' suffering. They know that. If he's going to go there to die and they're going to follow him, guess what might happen to them? In fact, you can read the Apostle Thomas over in the Gospel of John. He just flat out says this to Jesus. He's like, well, great then. Let's pack up our bags and go to Jerusalem and die. Sounds like a wonderful plan. So they understood well what was about to happen. They, they were amazed by it, probably not in the best sense of that word. And the followers were very afraid. But Jesus was explaining to them again now for the third time what was going to happen and why. Because he wanted, on the one hand, to prepare them for what was about to happen. And on the other hand, he was setting them up so that after the fact, they would actually believe that he is the Christ for real. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 19, here's what John writes. This is Jesus speaking. I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
This is why, beloved, we can't lose the wonder of the fact that three times before it ever happened, Jesus predicted in great detail what was going to happen to him and why, and it actually happened. This was written down for our sake so that like the early disciples, that we would believe. So this was Jesus' third prediction, and not long after that prediction, he entered into Jerusalem with his disciples and with his followers, and he received the praise and the adulation of the crowds. That's what this Sunday is about, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that he walked into Jerusalem to the praise of all the people. The next day, however, he goes to the temple and sees people making an absolute mockery of the worship of God because they're taking financial advantage of the people in the name of God. And so he puts together a whip and some, some uh, pieces of pottery at the end of that whip and he begins to, to, to snap the whip over and over again and Jesus Christ, the meek and mild, physically drives all of these people out of the temple. He cleanses the temple for the sake of the worship of God. What an amazing vision of Jesus. Not long after that, probably won't surprise you that he got involved in some debates with the religious leaders of the day. And uh, I suppose from their point of view, it didn't go all that well because he just wouldn't bend. He was very, very articulate. He was very insightful. And to be frank about it, he just shut them up. There was a place where it just says they wouldn't even dare asking him any more questions because in his wisdom, they could not penetrate him at all. And so then finally in chapter 13, at the, in response to something one of his disciples had said, Jesus told about the end of all time. And he told them about the day when he would return in great power and glory to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth and to judge all the nations of the world and to reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And this brings us back to that day, which was now only two days from the pinnacle of history. And God was in total control, preparing for his people a joy that could not be compared with any other joy in the history of the world. And in exact accord with the words of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, were plotting to kill him. As I said, they were not interested in debating with Jesus. They were not interested in irritating or agitating him. They were not interested in impugning his character or undermining his ministry or even destroying his ministry. They were interested in only one thing. We want him dead and we want him dead soon. So they're just waiting now for the very right time. They're waiting for the right time. Let it sink in. The main religious leaders of the historic people of God are plotting against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet God was in total control. Peter later preached at the day of Pentecost. He got up and preached this sermon. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he said that everything that happened to Jesus was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You just got to hear those words. Acts 2.23. It was all according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Indeed, the Lord was completely in control of everything that was about to happen to him. And in what was happening to him, he was preparing a joy for himself and for us that is not to be compared with any other joy. In the very moments when the leaders of Israel are plotting against the life of Jesus, he went to a little town called Bethany, which is off to the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. You can see it on on one of your Bible maps, I'm sure. 
And there in the town of Bethany, there was a man named Simon who once had leprosy. We don't know a lot about him, but it's likely that Jesus had healed him of leprosy. And now Jesus entered into his house with his disciples and reclined at his table and was eating a meal with him. And beloved, this is just a a remarkable prophetic kind of a thing. You have to know that in those days, lepers were not allowed to be around anybody and they were not allowed to, to allow others to be around them. Whenever anybody came anywhere near them, they had to yell out in the loudest voice that they were unclean, 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 because they didn't want to spread their infectious disease. But somehow along the way, the Lord Jesus Christ, in tremendous compassion and faith, came near to Simon, risking his own health, probably like he did in other cases, touched Simon, healed Simon, and now he enters into the house that was, nobody was supposed to enter into with his disciples. They lay around a table and they enjoy fellowship, they enjoy food, they enjoy some fun together. This is a symbol of the kingdom of God and the reason for which Jesus Christ came. It's really a very beautiful scene. While they were enjoying this meal together, A woman walked into the house with something very beautiful and unique and valuable in her hands. Mark doesn't tell us who this person was, but John, in his version of the story, tells us that this was Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, all of whom also lived in Bethany. So, in fact, from John, it looks like they were the ones who threw the party over at Simon's house. But whatever the details are, there Mary was, walking in the door with this amazing thing in her hands. It was an alabaster flask, which was a a marble-like container that would have been white-ish at least, would have been fatter at the bottom, a little bit skinnier at the top, and completely sealed off so that it could only be opened once in a lifetime. These flasks were famous for holding very expensive ointments because they, they preserved the ointment well without affecting the aroma of it or the quality of it. And in this case, Mark tells us that Mary's flask was filled with an ointment of what he calls pure nard. This undoubtedly means that the ointment came from the Himalayan region of northern India. In that area, a certain herb grew in abundance, and in its root, and sometimes in its bark, it contained the base product that that produced all of the most expensive ointments in the world at that time. These ointments were very pleasant to the smell. They were very strong, They were long-lasting, and yet it took a long time to extract the products and to develop the ointment, and therefore it was very, very expensive. In fact, when you put Mark and John's accounts together, you see that Mary walked into that house with 12 ounces of this ointment. So get in your mind, about about the size of a can of soda is how much ointment she had. And in that flask with 12 ounces of ointment, it was worth, in U.S. dollars, about $20,000. It was worth 300 days wages for a laborer. Think about that. She has a $20,000 gift in her hand, and that's a gift that's fit only for a king, if you ask me. And so Mary, with joy in her heart, probably a smile on her face, saw the Lord, and she walked over to him. She got near to him. She broke the top of the flask, a once-for-all kind of an act, Oh, and in such love and worship and gratitude for him, she pours $20,000 
of ointment over his head, and John tells us that she also anointed his feet as well. She anointed Jesus from head to toe in an unbelievably beautiful act of love and worship toward him. Now as beautiful as this was, some of the people there didn't understand what was happening and they were actually very upset about it. They were indignant in their hearts and the Bible says that they began to murmur to themselves. This isn't out loud. They're probably murmuring amongst each other and they're saying, why was this ointment wasted like that? That's their point of view. This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, $20,000, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So again, get the picture in your mind that they're not doing this out loud. They're doing this kind of in a corner. They've probably taken Mary aside and they begin to rebuke her, but Jesus is neither blind nor stupid, and he can see what's happening, and so he rises to Mary's defense, and he speaks on her behalf You'll see this in chapter 14, verse 6 and following. Jesus, the Lord who's just been anointed, says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Don't you understand? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. That's your freedom. That's your joy. That's your calling. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for what? For burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, even in Elk River, Minnesota, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Beloved, Jesus was fully aware of the details of his death. And by the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he knew that what she had just done was connected to his death. He knew that she had just prepared him for his death and for his burial. And he no doubt felt the deep joy of God because of it. He felt the deep worship of God in his heart because of it. Now why do you think the Lord thought this was so beautiful? How did he come to see what he saw? Why did it fill him with such joy? Why did it fill him with such passion to rise up and defend what she did and call it a beautiful, beautiful thing? Well, again, my answer is that he knew the scriptures very, very well. Hebrews chapter one. The author is comparing angels and Jesus. And he says in verse seven, he says, of the angels God says, he makes his angels winds, and his messengers a flame of fire. Now that's a huge compliment, because what that means is that the angels are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the wind. And they're filled with the holiness of God. They're blazing with the holiness of God. That's the fire. This is a very high thing to say that the angels are wind and a flame of fire. A very high thing. But when compared to the sun, it's almost nothing. So verse 8, he says, But of the sun, God says... He's talking to Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, because of that, God, your God, has done something. God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God 
has poured upon your head the very expensive ointment of a joy that is far beyond any joy that has ever been experienced by anyone in the history of heaven or of earth. And because you love him, because you hate the things that are against him, because you live in a way that honors what you love and what you hate, your father has poured this oil upon you in great abundance and you will know his joy. Now, as I have prayed and contemplated this for weeks, I feel certain that the oil of gladness talked about in Hebrews chapter one, which by the way, comes from Psalm 45, a prophecy that David made. I'm sure that that oil of gladness there has to do with more than the oil of Bethany, but I am also convinced that the oil of Bethany has everything to do with the oil of gladness that was poured over the head of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced of it. And one of the reasons I'm so convinced is because of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, verses that we memorized together a few weeks ago. He instructs us and says, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for what? For the joy that was set before him did what? He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, if you think it was easy for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be killed on the cross, you're crazy. We're gonna find out next Sunday just how difficult this was for Jesus to endure the cross. What was it that got him through? It was the joy that the Father set before him. It was this anointing oil of gladness that God put upon him that drove him on. It was the deep pleasure of doing the will of God and walking in the ways of God. It was the joy of seeking and saving the lost for the glory of God. It was the joy of embracing death so that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. I say destroy him. It was the joy of knowing that through death He would come and set free. He would deliver those who through fear of death had lived in lifelong slavery and fear. It was the joy that through his death and burial and resurrection, Jesus Christ would win for himself followers, believers, worshipers from every single tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth who would one day be gathered with him together with his Father where they would share in an eternal fellowship. This was the joy set before him. And beloved, going back to Bethany, the act of anointing there was such a gracious gift from his Father to him. It was one of the things that helped him endure the cross. This anointing oil... Remember I told you that the aroma was very strong. John tells us in chapter 12, his version of the story, that when Mary anointed Jesus, the fragrance filled the entire house. Everywhere you went, you could smell the smell. Think about it. The anointing oil is soaking in Jesus' hair. It's all over his face and his beard. It's dripped down onto his chest and back and shoulders. 
It's all over his feet from head to toe. He is covered in the most expensive ointment available in that day. A strong smelling, pleasant smelling, long lasting ointment. And that ointment would have lasted for the next two days through which he endured suffering, through which he endured the cross. And I can imagine, as I prayed about this this week, I can just see a scene where he's being mocked or he's being beaten or someone's ripping out his beard or someone's slashing his back with the flogging mechanism that they had. And there is he's enduring a pain that can't even hardly be imagined. The father causes a wind or some other servant of God to rise up and, and allow Jesus to smell the smell of this anointing oil of joy. And he smells the smell. And even in the midst of the suffering, a smile comes upon his face because the joy has been set before him. The oil has been placed upon him. And he knows that all this suffering is worth what it will produce. And so he endures the cross cross. Oh, beloved, God was being so gracious to Jesus on that night when Mary broke the flask and poured out the oil. It is an integral part of what helped Jesus endure. Not long after this most meaningful moment, Jesus gathered again with his disciples. You see this later in chapter 14, and they enjoyed a meal together. In fact, they enjoyed their last meal together. And there he broke the bread and he gave it to them and he said, listen, brothers, sisters, this is my body broken for you. It's the meaning of my death. And after they ate, he passed around the wine and they drank it. And after they drank it and tasted that sweetness and bitterness in their mouth, felt it going down into their stomach, he said, listen, listen. That is the blood of the covenant in my name, blood which I am spilling out for you. And, and I tell you truthfully, I will not drink of this vine again with you until the day when I come into my Father's kingdom. I will not drink with this, this with you again until that day when I have gathered the elect from every corner of the earth and brought them into the presence of my Father and called them my bride and entered into an eternal marriage with them. And then we will sit down at the wedding feast to end all wedding feasts and we will eat bread and we will drink wine and we will feel a joy that you have never felt, a joy that is unparalleled in the history of the world. It was the joy that was set before me, the joy for which I endured the cross. It's the joy that I bought for you, that I won for you, that I give to you freely without payment. Come, enter into the joy of your master. Oh, beloved, that's what Bethany is all about. That's what the anointing oil of joy is all about. It's a gracious gift from the Father that sustained our Savior all the way to the end. Jesus did everything that he did, not just so that we would admire him, but so that we would enter into life and joy through him. So just before I pray, I want to say to you that if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. And how could you not believe in one who has done something so beautiful for you? So I just want to encourage you, open up your heart to him. Believe in him. He's given everything for you, so give your heart to him. You won't regret it. Believe me. There'll be suffering, but for the joy set before you, you'll endure that suffering. And for the rest of you who have believed in Christ, I want to invite you to increase the Lord's joy and to increase our joy in him by going after him with a passion. 
Like, just devote everything in your life to this Jesus who devoted his everything to you. You can only do that by his grace and by his power. But what I'm asking of you today is to let his loving sacrifice for you woo you toward him. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Now taste and taste and taste again until all of the other pleasures of this world just fade away and there's nothing left but Jesus. There's no one left but Jesus. From your heart, all you want is to be wherever Jesus is. Oh, increase his joy by pursuing him with a passion today, I pray. Let's pray. Lord, I feel in awe of you. I feel in awe of your absolute control of history. I feel in awe of your control of an herb that grows up in India and ends up in a flask in Jerusalem and ends up on the head of our Savior there. An oil that helped him endure the cross. An oil that prophesied to him about the great things to come. An oil that was a prophecy of the joy that was set before him and the joy that's available to us in Christ right now. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would teach each of us how to enter into that joy. Oh, Father, help us to die to lesser things that we might taste this greatest and eternal thing. We love you for what you'll do now. In the mighty and matchless and merciful name of Jesus Christ, amen.